Welcome to the Highway Church Podcast. We're excited that you would join us today and hope you're encouraged by the message you hear. If you'd like to know more, visit our website, highway.com.au. So most of you won't know me. So I've come home, but home changed. Um, You'll be glad to know that you mentioned my wife, Robin Byron. You'll be glad to know that she finally looked at me the other day and said, you know, you and I finally have something in common, you know, because we're very opposite, right, and Very opposites. And I said, what's that? And she goes, we both love you. And uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I like that. Uh, it's a, it is a pleasure to be back at Highway. Byron looks, you look good, man. Clive and I noticed right away. He's, the guy's tough. You know his story? The guy, uh, I heard that when he got COVID, they had to quarantine COVID for two weeks. The, the damage he did to the virus is just... So, yeah, you think about that, you'll get it in a second. So, so. <clears throat> and those of, uh, those of uh, the family of Highway, those of, uh, who've had any kind of relationship with Highway in the past, I know some of you, if you've been here in the past, thinking, oh, no, Jeff Vines is here, I'm going to get another headache. And so just let me tell you right from the get-go, this sermon has really two parts to it. Each stand on its own, but it has two parts. So I'm going to invite you back tonight. It's kind of like good cop, bad cop. This is bad cop, and then tonight's good cop. And they go together well, so I really want to encourage you. I don't know what you usually do on Sunday night, but you'll get the biggest bang for the buck, and you'll get a lot out of this if you, if you invest in that, okay? Now, I'm in Revelation. Who would do that? I'm in the book of Revelation. And... There's the letter to the seven churches, and Jesus is giving a specific message to churches in Asia Minor, and if you know anything about prophecy, there are those who believe that each church represents a specific time in the age of the church. Uh, That's another sermon for another time, because there's a specific church in verse 12 of chapter 2, Pergamum, and the reason I'm going to do this is because this past year... I do a study break every year where I will go for about six weeks and write a new book. And this year, I decided I wanted to go visit the seven cities of the seven churches. And I specifically had an interest in Pergamum because Jesus gives the church in Pergamum a very specific description. Now, if I ask you to uh, say, if I said the New York, what landmark would you think about Statue of Liberty. If I said San Francisco, what would you think of? Golden Gate Bridge. See, you know more about America than I do. If I were to say Los Angeles, Hollywood probably, right? Or the worst airport on the earth, right? Yeah, I agree with you. No problem. Now, if most Americans, if I said Sydney, what do you think they would think of? The Opera House, Brisbane. What? Steve Irwin Zoo. That's what most Americans would say. Oh, that's Steve Irwin Zoo. How about Cairns? The Great Barrier Reef. That's a, and I know it's in Port Douglas, but it's all part of it. And if I were to say Tasmania. Now, some of you need to keep that to yourself. But most Americans would say, never heard of it. And Clive and I are actually going to be there. We leave tomorrow to go do some ministry down there. Now, when... People in the New Testament, after the letters are written to the seven churches, when you say the word Pergamum, do you know what they think of? The seat of Satan. 
Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, which we'll talk about in a moment, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, let's just stop there just for a moment. The seed of Satan. I went to Pergamum. And I love history, so I loved reading and trying to understand what does it mean, the seed of Satan. Now, what I'm about to tell you will take a little bit of brain power in the early part of the message, but if you will just go with me on this little journey, I promise you at the end, it's all going to be put into a funnel. It's going to come out, and you're going to think, oh, so that's what's happening. So in Pergamum, like the other cities, you have the, the, the temples of the gods. They're everywhere. In Pergamum, you've got Dionysus, who's supposedly the son of Zeus. And according to the teachings of the Dionysus cult, if you want to worship God, you just get drunk. So the more wine you drink and the more intoxicated you become, you move into that medium place between you and the gods, and you fellowship with the gods. Now, if you remember anything about the church in Ephesus, they worshiped a god called Artemis. And to worship that god, you engaged in sex. So the more sex you had, the more you bridged that middle ground where you became godlike in Pergamum, the more wine you drank, the more alcohol you drank, the closer you got to the gods. Does anybody think that possibly men came up with these religions? You think that might be? Then you had the temple of Asclepius. Asclepius was the snake god. So as you pass through, and I saw this, and I witnessed the, the archaeology, the stone's still there, you pass by a column with a snake on it, and it's the god Asclepius. And you go in, and they give you drugs, and you go into a dream state, and through the power of suggestion, they tell you that the gods will tell you what's wrong with you, and then they'll give you the ailment. Funny thing is, no matter what you said, you always took a mud bath. And it was supposed to heal you. And then you would come out and write your name on a white stone. Now, it's interesting in that same passage I just read down in verse 17, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches to the one who's victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give the person a white stone with a new name on it. Jesus doesn't just pull that out of the air. He's saying, you go to the Asclepius temple, you probably won't get healed. It's all a hoax. But if you come to me, I'll give you spiritual healing that lasts for eternity. So after that, you have the, what I call the god of agriculture, Demeter, the goddess of grain. And then you had the, a temple, and all these temples were in Pergamum, by the way. You have the temple to the Roman emperors. Now, this is important because if you were, if you were able, if you wanted to go into the Agora, which is the marketplace, and you wanted to buy and sell and trade, you had to first stop at the, the entrance of the city or the Agora, and you had to burn incense to Caesar. And if you refuse to burn incense to Caesar, you were not allowed to enter the Agora. And on a really bad day, if they really got ticked, they could just kill you. Everybody burned incense to Caesar. And you had to say, Caesar is Lord. Now, Rodney Stark has written a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he says, when scholars wonder how it is that this small band of believers and Christianity grew the way that it did the first 300 years, he's a historian. He's not even a Christian. You ought to read the book sometime. You get it on Amazon. Rodney Stark, The Rise of Christianity. He says, the reason that it grew was because the church refused to compromise. 
So they could have gone and they said, okay, I'll burn this incense, but I don't really mean it in my heart. I mean, I'll burn it, but I don't really mean it. No, the church said, no, we won't do that. We won't even give the appearance of evil. And because they wouldn't even do anything that gave the appearance of evil, even though it wasn't wrong or right, it was amoral, didn't really matter. The people saw their courage and said, man, I want to be part of that group, and the church exploded with growth. Do you think that might explain a little bit about why we are where we are in the West? There's a statue still to this day in Pergamum. I walked right up to it. I couldn't believe it. Here, what are we, 2,000 years removed? And Antipas is still a hero in Pergamum today. And here's why. There's a huge bronze bowl. So you've got the altar of Zeus, these huge columns with the false gods, this huge backdrop, and then right in the middle is this altar, and it's the altar of Zeus. Antipas was a Christ follower, and he refused to compromise, so they took Antipas and they threw him on the center of that altar, and there's a big bronze bowl where they heat so that those who won't burn incense to Caesar or worship the false gods or engage in intoxication or wild sex, by the way, the religion in Pergamum was so immoral that the Romans even outlawed it. That's how bad Pergamum was. They took Antipas, this Christ follower, and put him on that bronze bowl and burned him alive. Slowly. It was meant to be a torturous death. And then to add insult to injury, the pagan priest took the smoldering bones of Antipas and made necklaces out of it and wore it as jewelry. The scene of Satan to which Jesus refers to in Pergamum, stay with me, is this temple of Zeus, and in the middle of the temple of Zeus is the seat of Satan, the altar of bronze, the huge bronze bowl where Christians were sacrificed to the gods. Now, I want you to take that thought, put it over here to the side for a moment, and let's go a different direction. We'll hook it back in in a moment. In 1864, a German engineer by the name of Karl Hermann Frank came to Pergamum was captivated by the altar of Zeus, excavated the altar, and brought it back to Berlin. Stone by stone, he transported it, the seat of Satan, into a museum that would be called the Pergamum Museum. And in 1889, so we're going ahead a couple of years, 20-some years, the temple of Zeus was completely restored. In other words, they went to Pergamum, which is in Turkey, got it, excavated it, took it back to Berlin, opened it up in 1889, and on the day of its completion and inauguration, a baby is born on the border of Austria and Germany by the name of Adolf, Adolf Hitler. Hitler is born on the same day, Nisan 19, that the Temple of Zeus is completed and restored in Berlin, which incidentally, as I was reading the history and I started putting two and two together, I thought, wait a minute. That's the same date on the Hebrew calendar that Pharaoh attempted to annihilate the people of God by pursuing them in the Red Sea. So in 1889, thanks to German engineer Karl Hermann, the Temple of Zeus, the seat of Satan, is completely restored in Berlin. Now, you can talk to, to Byron and Ann. I'm usually not this kind of flaky on this stuff. I don't go in for this stuff, do I? I'm usually very heady, and that's part of my problem. But then I got the Pergamum, and I started reading the history and doing the research. And Robin and Sion said, come on, stop reading. We want to go see some things. We want to go have some coffee. And I said, no, i got to keep going now. I, something good is happening here. Let's go down this rabbit trail. 
Now, the temple of Zeus completely restored in Berlin. Now, move ahead. The altar of Zeus catches the eye of Albert Speer, the chief architect of the Nazi party. Adolf Hitler now is in full power. He's not a little baby anymore. He tells Albert Speer to construct the parade grounds where he's going to have the party rallies at Nuremberg. So Speer creates this colossal grandstand at the rally grounds known as the Zeppelin Tribune. He creates the, or recreates the altar of Zeus in the middle of the grandstand right where Hitler's podium is. Now follow me. Most of the rallies were held at night. So Speer surrounded the grandstands with 150 lights that would just shoot up into the air miles and miles away. 150 searchlights. And it created this kind of mystical effect, and that's exactly what Hitler wanted. The effect was known as the Cathedral of Lights because Hitler wanted to be worshipped and seen to be a god. He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to create a transcendent experience. He understood all too well that when you think of the gods, you're always looking up. So he wanted to create this environment where everyone was looking toward the heavens And when he would speak in Nuremberg, they had this kind of idea. The way the light show would work was Hitler appeared to be descending down on the people who were waiting in a godlike kind of dissension. And historians tell us that when Hitler came among the people, they all starry eyes, expressions of wonder. They were in the presence of God, and all that was intentional. Do you also know, and this is some of the stuff that I had done earlier in my research, that Hitler actually borrowed Christian phrases Hail Hitler to thee, O Hitler, became a popular song. And then Hitler would say things like this. You are flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood. We are one. You must pick up your cross daily and follow me. You must deny yourself for the greater good of Germany. And from his podium, Hitler would mesmerize crowds. Again, there were lights going up to the heavens in the midst of all this darkness because the rallies were typically held at night. And he would say, not every one of you sees me, and I don't see every one of you, but I feel you and you feel me. We are one in spirit. Man, does that sound, you've heard that before? And thousands of Germans would swear this oath, and the Nazi oath went like this. Blazing flames hold us together into eternity. No one shall take this faith from those who are dedicated to the German people. Now, do you realize what Hitler's doing? Now, here's a good point because I, I don't think any of us are smart enough to know this. The question is, Did Hitler do this on purpose, or was Satan using Hitler to accomplish his goal? You can't really know, can you? You don't really know what's in the mind. But what you do know is this. Listen now. No matter what God does, no matter how good it is, Satan always offers a counterfeit. And if you don't recognize that in your own life, the demon goes in too deep. Whatever God does... Hitler places this podium in the exact location where human sacrifices took place in the bronze bowl, the altar of Zeus, the seat of Satan. Satan has always wanted to mock God, to take something that God did, mock it. Let me, let me show you a few examples here before we get into the application. This is mesmerizing. In Genesis chapter 22, God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac onto the mountain of Moriah. I want you to sacrifice him. Whatever was going on, Abraham knew that God would not go through with it. Because if you look at the text, he says to the servant, hey, I'll be back down in the mountain and I'll be bringing my boy with me. But something was up. Let me read to you what happens. After these things, 
God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains or one of the mountains on which I should tell you. Now, if you know, the original text of the Bible, the Old Testament, the the Torah is written in Hebrew. But there's also what we call the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament, the word for burnt offering is costus. Costus means burnt. But to be completely burnt means holos costus. Now, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? So a holy burnt sacrifice is a holocaust. Satan's forte has always been counterfeiting. So Satan takes God's promise to Abraham, turns it on its head, and sets about to offer up the people of God on the sacrifice of his altar, the seed of Satan, the altar of Zeus, and the leader of the Third Reich. This is uncanny. We could go on... All day. And because Byron said I had four hours, I'll just take... I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I've got about 35 minutes, so you've got to hold on tight. You start thinking about this, and you realize that the SS men took the people that were condemned to die, made sure they were unaware of what waited for them, right? They were told that you're being sent to a camp, you have to undergo disinfection and a bath, and then... The victims were undressed, they were taken up into a chamber, they were locked in, they were killed with Zyklon B gas in the gas chambers. Then they dragged out the corpse, cut off the women's hair, removed all the metal dental work and jewelry, and then they would bury or burn the corpse in the crematorium furnaces, right? That's that's the way that it happened. So Satan doesn't just erect an altar. He relentlessly tries to replace the altar of God with a false god who's empowered by Satan himself, and then he mocks the process. Satan blasphemes God's provision of the lamb and instead offers God's own people as a burnt offering to himself. You say, wait a minute, I'm not sure I can follow you there. Well, stay with me. Satan is not creative. He's the ultimate plagiarist. He just takes what God creatively establishes. And counterfeits it. Now, let me show you what I mean by it. You know, uh, most of you should be familiar with Yom Kippur. There was a great sermon probably 20 years ago now preached by Rob Bell. And the sermon is titled, The The Goat Has Left the Building. It's a famous sermon. But he talks about the scapegoat. And on the day of Yom Kippur, the priest will go in and he will place his hand. There will be two goats. One goat will be the sacrifice for his own sin. He has to be clean before he can offer the sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the other. And then he will take his hands and transfer, in an act of transference that God honored, he will take his hands, put them on the head of this goat. And the goat then will be taken out into the wilderness. Now, they would, they would have to hire a Gentile to take the goat out because you don't want to be anywhere near this goat if you're Jewish because all the sins of the community are on the head of the goat. And they would tie a red cord around the head of the goat so that the red cord would be attached. And over the next 10 days after the scapegoat was offered, taken out into the wilderness, that red cord would turn white. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be made white as snow. By the way, interesting little tidbit. After the death of Christ, we have no story in Jewish history of where the cord turned white. You don't need the goat anymore. It's a useless act. You've got the ultimate lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
But think about it just for a moment. What does Hitler do? What does Satan do? He mocks the whole process. He blames the Jewish people for the sins of the Germans so that the Jewish people become themselves the scapegoat. He forces all the Jews. He tells the Gentiles that in order for us to be blessed, we've got to cast out. We've got to put out into the wilderness the Jewish people. And then he puts a red-letter J on every Jewish passport. And then he leads them out into the wilderness, into concentration wilderness camps. He transports them with cattle, goats, and lambs, the very type of things that were sacrificed on the Temple Mount on behalf of the people of God. The enemy is always taking something that is meant for holy and it's good and counterfeiting it for his purposes, which is to destroy the people of God. 2 Chronicles 29.7, we read this, that burnt offerings are in the holy place to the God of Israel. So there will be burnt offerings in the holy place. There is a city, a place in Europe called Auschwitzim. Its name means holy place. Would you like to guess what city? Auschwitz. Do you see what he's doing? Satan sacrifices God's people in his own holy place. One more thing. How many people were killed? Most people, if you look, how many people died during uh, the Holocaust events? You have 60 million people worldwide, 6 million Jews. Satan gave a tithe to himself. The people of God, the seed of Satan. The story's told that Hitler went in once to a medium, and the medium said, you're going to die. Your death will be on a Hebrew holy day. And he said, how do you know that? And she said, any day you die is going to be a Hebrew holy day. <laughs> one, more, one more thing. We'll get into the application. The people of Jesus are called lambs, sheep without a shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Satan is referred to as the wolf. And without the protection of the shepherd, the wolf devours the sheep. You know what Adolf means? You guessed it, wolf. Wolf. Okay. So what, Pastor Jeff? Interesting stuff, but so what? If Byron and Ann and I could sit down with every single one of you across the table, anybody that's ever been to the church we pastor, and maybe even those who aren't with us anymore, the one thing we would like to say to you was this. You better stay connected. You're not that strong. And Satan is so clever that he will counterfeit. And if you're not strongly, strongly anchored, you're not smart enough. See, we know we're not smart enough. And we're in the Bible every single day. We're connected every day. And we know still. In Acts chapter 2, Rodney Stark tells us how the church survived and exploded in the known world because they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were together. They were together. And here's what I've noticed, and this is the, the meat of the message here. It is my strong opinion that Satan has erected three counterfeit things in the affluent West. It doesn't take me long to tell you, but I want you to write them down. Okay, there are three counterfeit things. And the first is this. He's offering counterfeit peace and hope. Peace and hope. Man, in our affluence, what happened to us pre-COVID? Folks, Byron goes to India all the time. He goes because I think he goes the same reason I go to Africa. 
to remind me of how good we have it here. Do you know that you live better than two-thirds of the rest of the world? Do you know if you make $35,000 a year, you're in the top 4% of wage earners in the world? You know, one billion people don't have clean drinking water. You do know that, right? Most people don't have transportation. They ride bicycles. The little house that your car lives in is better than 86% of the houses in the world. It's called a garage. And 86% of the world would love to have your garage as their home and only have one family living in it. The problem is, and this is, this is where we pastors, we really have to think about this. So we're so confident that the things we have now financially will always be with us when nothing could be more volatile. Just because we're okay today doesn't mean we're going to be okay tomorrow. You saw what COVID did just like that. In fact, if I can just be honest, and if, I, if you get in trouble, I'm sorry. Blame it on me. I am so surprised that you Aussies, I, thought, I told my wife, man, those Aussies are going to put up with that. Those Aussies are tough people. They lined us all up in the world, didn't they? Man, we're vulnerable people. The rich and the wealthy can subject us just like that. We are dependent, whether we want to believe it or not. And if you put your faith in anything like your money, man, you're foolish because it could go just like that. I wonder, though, sometimes, I've asked this question, and I discuss it with my wife because, you know, you always ask your wife because she knows everything. And uh, I said, Rob, do you think that Satan would bless you? She said, well, what do you mean? Do you think Satan would give you something that's good? Okay, think about this. So Satan knows, you know what I'm going to do? The American church, let's talk about America for a minute. The American church is so strong. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to give it tons of money. Because if I give it tons of money, it'll have dispensable income, expendable income. And instead of going to church on the weekends, it'll have the means to go to the beach and on vacation and to the mountains. They'll forget all about church because they got all this other stuff, all this other stuff they can afford. Church will become the last thing they want to do. And I'll destroy it from within. Is money good? Yeah. Does Satan counterfeit it? Absolutely. Listen to me. I've got a daughter. I love my daughter. I love her. She's been in Kazakhstan for four years. She went there to teach English. She is gifted, far more gifted than her father. She's on top of the world. And I look at her and I say, man, God is going to use this girl. She goes, Dad, I, I, I offer to them know her money. She says, Dad, I can do it on my own. I offer my son that, he gives me three accounts. <laughs> you know how that goes. My daughter says, no, I can do this myself. So she's teaching English to make money so she can start small groups of evangelism, which is illegal in Kazakhstan. So while I was in Turkey this year, she came to visit me. And we, she loves to hike, so we went on a hike. And we're hiking. Listen carefully. We're hiking. And she says, Dad, you know, I've been here for almost four years now. I'm lonely, but I think God has sent me a man. I said, well, tell me about him. Well, he's an atheist. And I said to my daughter, who respects me, God didn't send you that man. Satan sent you that man. Because he knows, he sees what you're doing and where you're going. And if he can just use love as a counterfeit, he'll destroy you. Do you understand that? 
See, some of you, I see the look on your face. Well, I'm not so sure about that. You know why? Because this culture worships love, sex, and money. God, I had a woman uh, probably two months ago, went on the church parking lot. Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, I'm back at church now. It's been great, man. You know, it's been, things are going well. God sent me this man. I said, well, tell me about him. Well, does he come to church? No, he doesn't like church, doesn't really like Christians. And I looked her right in the eye and I said, Becky, God didn't send you that man. That man came from Satan. And after you have counterfeit peace, You've got counterfeit euphoria and experience. Now, let's keep going. My generation, Byron and my generation, and Ann, well, Ann's so much younger than we are, but our generation, we were possessed by power and money. And the reason we wanted more power and money, because we figured if we had more money, then we, could, we were more liberated. We could do the things that we wanted to do. Travel, see the world, but you had to have money, so we kind of pursued it. We were addicted, our generation, and it's our fault, our generation was addicted to happiness, but not the traditional way that Plato and Aristotle defined it. Happiness is defined by Plato and Aristotle is finding your place in God's world and playing it. Finding your role. In other words, Plato and Aristotle believed, first century philosophers, if you find your place in God's world, that's going to bring you happiness. But happiness is redefined now, and we did it. It's our fault. We redefined it as pleasurable satisfaction. So we thought happiness is doing fun things to get a good feeling, to feel good. So if it feels good, what was the, what was the motto of our generation? If it feels good, I'm going to do it because that's what makes me happy. Never mind the fact it may destroy you. And now we move into this generation that we've created who also pursues euphoria. But in their minds, they won't do something that doesn't feel good. It's all about finding something that feels good. So we have in America an entire generation quitting their jobs because it doesn't feel good. So I'm not going to do anything that doesn't feel good. If it takes any kind of effort and I'm a little bit you know, put out, I'm not going to do it. Now, it can be honorable to quit a job that does not match your talents and abilities God's given you. That's a different topic. But if your primary motive throughout your entire life in your decisions is to make you happy to experience pleasurable satisfaction, there will be no sense of obligation or duty because sometimes obligation and duty hurts. Which is why Christians are sleeping together that are not married. It feels good. And you've got no sense of obligation or duty, so why wouldn't you do it? God will forgive me. What a dangerous game. Don't you understand that everything counterfeit is designed to destroy? It may not get you today. It may not get you tomorrow, but ultimately it will get you. The reality, though, is that, of course, you have a thirst for euphoria because God put it there, but it's supposed to be filled by what you just experienced in that last song, worship. The euphoria is you coming into the presence of God. That's where the euphoria is. And if you've ever been in a church service where suddenly you were in worship and you felt like, man, the, the, the concrete between heaven and earth broke apart, and suddenly you feel that you are one with Christ, you'll know there's no greater feeling, and you pursue that. You pursue it so much that sometimes we'll actually fake it, won't we? But when it's real, it's powerful. Archbishop William Temple said, Worship 
is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of the imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of the will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up into adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. A life of worship is a life of euphoria that satisfies. And can I tell you something? This again is what Byron and Ann want to say to you. Yes, worship can happen alone in your closet, but ladies and gentlemen, please hear me now. All through the Old and New Testament, God moved in the sanctuary. God moves among his people when they're congregated together. David said what? I am happy as I'm going up to the temple of the Lord. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving. See, the thing COVID did, we got even lazier than we already were. Yeah, you can be saved. You can have a relationship. But there's, if, if, there's, if there's been a, a genuine and authentic move of the Holy Spirit in your heart, then that means it is no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. And I can tell you something about Jesus. He wants to be around others. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The reason there's perfect unity within the diversity of the Trinity is because of community. You are wired to be together and to witness the presence and the moving of the hand of God. But let me tell you, Satan knows that that's what you seek, so he's going to offer you something that's counterfeit. And he understands the power of sex and money. Because, folks, those are good things. Sex is a gift from God. But when it's experienced outside his parameters, it will destroy you. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not next week. And here's the thing I told my daughter. See, on God's hand is on you, and you're going to do this, and you're going. You're, God's going to use you. And then this comes in, and why does this happen? Because he wants to distract you. Well, are you saved? Of course you're saved. By the grace of God, I get that. But you do know there are some decisions you make in your life where you forfeit your opportunity to be used to the degree you were called to be used. You might still be saved, but, man, you're missing out. And if there's no conviction in you, no duty, no obligation, do you remember what God, to almost finish now, only one more, we're right on time. Do you remember what God said to Moses? Moses said, how do I know you're going to be with me? I mean, you want me to leave these people? It's hard. That's duty. That's obligation. How do I know you're going to be with me? In Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, God says to Moses, here's how you know. When it's all over, you're going to stand on this mountain and worship me. Don't you love that? He said, here's how you, so I'm not going to tell you anything now. I'll tell you what, you obey me and you'll see that I was with you. I mean, that's classic. We've lost our ability to feel God because we've lost our willingness to obey him. You don't feel God because you're not walking with him. But you know that when you're walking, and you're not perfect. I mean, come on now. I'm not talking about you're, you're totally righteous. No man or woman is. But you know in your heart when you're not walking with him. And the one thing your heart wants more than anything else is to experience God. So it's uncanny. People will stop walking for God and somehow they blame the church. And then finally, and this is the hardest one, hear me now, and this is why I said you have to come back tonight. Counterfeit identity. Counterfeit identity. Have you ever heard of the Tower of Pisa in Italy? Yeah. Yeah. It's known around the world as the uh, unintentional tilt. (laughs) 
the, if you know anything about the building project, it was flawed from the beginning because the foundation was only three meters deep and the subsoil was weak and unstable all around it. And in the 1990s, engineers decided they were going to, because they were afraid it was going to collapse, they were going to straighten the tower. And they did so, but only by one and one half degrees. And it worked for a while, but the foundation was weak. Folks, if you don't start well, listen now. This is a climactic point. If you don't start well, it's hard to finish well. And when it comes to your identity, who we really are, the Bible says that if you don't begin with the doctrine of sin, you will build your life on a false assumption. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean your true identity, if you're a Christ follower, and if you're a Christ follower, what I'm about to say is not up for discussion, and you know that. Your true identity is that you are made in the image of Christ, but you are a fallen creature. You are all sinners. We are all sinners. Everybody in the room has got issues. When we say that to a secular person, they're offended. And I can understand that to some degree because the gospel is offensive in the beginning. But if it offends you as a Christ follower, you've been taken in by the counterfeit. You are made in the image of Christ, but you have a fallen nature. We're all sinners. And every moment of your life is to either walk in the flesh or walk in the spirit. Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. Wow, the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. I'm the chief of all sinners. Yes, I've been created in the image of God. But the moment I was born, Paul says, I had a disposition towards self and flesh and away from God and the Spirit. You know that, right? You know your children. You think they're little angels. I got grandchildren. I love them. But sometimes they can be spoiled, rotten little brats. Do you know why? I mean, I have to, I have to train my children to share. You think they automatically want to share? I have to train them to tell the truth. i got to train them to do the right thing. Because we're all fallen creatures. And that should be good news to some of you parents because your children struggle with sin not because they had an improper upbringing, but because they're sinners. I mean, my goodness, Adam and Eve had the perfect parents and they blew it. Because you have a choice. God tells you that you're created in his image but tainted by the fall and the sinful nature, which is why our children are manipulative, why they say mine, and it's because we have to instruct them. Now, listen carefully. This is good. I think this is going to help us in our culture. Satan offers a counterfeit claim to identity. He tells you, and he always mixes truth and error, he tells you you're created in God's image and therefore everything you feel and do is right. Therefore, if something is innate, it must be right. You with me? Jesus teaches just because something is innate doesn't mean it's permissible. He says you must be born again. Born again, put off the desires of the flesh and live according to the Spirit. And when it comes to sexual sin and identity in our culture, this world lies under the sway of the evil one. And people will say to you, you were born that way, so it must be okay. Will you think of that logic for a moment? If you were to talk to my wife, yeah, Jeff was born selfish, narcissistic, and an overall pain in the backside. I'm a guy. I was born to sleep with as many women as possible. Right? Why don't I? When I'm 18, 19, 20 years old, what stops me from doing it? I was born innately. I was born. That's the desire. Because I'm walking in the spirit, not in the flesh. 
I'm concerned about our society right now telling people that if you feel a certain way, it must be innate, therefore it must be right. That's ludicrous. Some people can take one drink of alcohol and put the alcohol down. Some can take one and it leads to a gazillion. Now, why, why is there a difference? Why can somebody take one and that's fine? Why can another person, what do they say? One is not enough and two is too many. Why? predisposition. You know we're all wired differently, right? We all have different desires. What tempts me may not tempt you. What tempts you may not tempt me. But it's all temptation. And no temptation has come across anybody that is not common to man that God will not provide a way out. Some people are predisposed to lie. Have you ever met a people pleaser? They lie to everyone because they want everybody to like them. But some people don't do that. They don't care whether you like them or not. Why? Innateness does not mean something is permissible. That logic is ridiculous. That means if I have a desire of pedophilia, that because I have a desire to be intimate with young girls, it must be right. So that's ridiculous. You must be born again. It doesn't matter that you were born an alcoholic. You must be born again. It doesn't matter that you were born a liar. You must be born again. It doesn't matter that you were born addicted to porn. You must be born again. It doesn't matter that you were born with an aversion to monogamy and a desire for polygamy. You must be born again. You must be born again. The American Psychiatric Association, now this is not a Christian journal, folks. This is, this is what we call modern science, says this. Some people believe that sexual orientation is innate and fixed. However, sexual orientation develops across a lifetime. This is science telling me that, that there are influences in your life. And scientists are far from discovering the factors that contribute to the development of sexual attractiveness. So it's untenable and irresponsible to claim that the innateness of sexual attraction is a proven reality. It is not. Pastor Jeff, dude, chill out a little bit. Why do you talk like this? Because I love you. You see, you think pastors want to be the big, bad, cosmic bosses. No. We're shepherds. We're supposed to tell you this. Not because we hate you, not because we think you're somehow a worse sinner, not at all. We're all sinners. Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. We tell you this because there's a better way of living. I tell my daughter, I got strong with her, stop this now, because I love her, not because I hate her. And if she doesn't pay attention to me, you think I'll still love her? Of course I will. She's my daughter. But I will tell her because I love her. Sex is the counterfeit God of this age because it promises a euphoria that only authentic, genuine worship can offer. An eternal euphoria. Make no mistake that a heart given to Jesus submits to Christ and finds purpose, meaning, and ultimate identity in walking with Jesus through the struggles of life in a fallen world. So here's my question. How's your heart? How, how are you? Let me tell you how your heart is. Like mine, wicked. <laughs> Bible says, the heart of man is wicked. I'm just quoting scripture. Self-preserving, rationalistic. And if you're not aware of how Satan tries to counterfeit good things in your life, you will fall for the counterfeit and it will destroy you. 
For every desire God gives you to draw you into relationship with him, Satan gives you an illegitimate way to fill it. But it won't bring life. It'll bring death. And tonight, I get to play good cop (laughs) and tell you the other side of that story. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room right now in Jesus' name, and I ask you that if there's someone in the room who's been blinded by counterfeit gods, their eyes would be opened by the power of your spirit. I thank you for this wonderful church. I thank you for the name that Highway has among pastors in Southern California. I thank you for Byron and Ann. I thank you for their love for the people of this church, the sacrifices they have made over the years. I pray your blessings on this church. If you've blessed them in the past, that you will bless it in the future. And God, I pray that my brothers and sisters in this room would not see this message as one of judgment, but would see it one, or rather, perhaps judgment, but not condemnation. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Father, I pray that there is a sense of judgment revealed in the Scripture that has already been revealed that pastors communicate, and that is my intention. If any of us have a blinder in our life that we've fallen for a counterfeit God, that we would turn away and stop compromising so that the light of Jesus Christ would shine in our lives and shine in our church and shine in this community and our world. Give us the strength and courage to make the decision to leave this life of death and walk with you in the light of life. I pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to get in contact with us or find out more about Highway Church, go to highway.com.au.